You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. What if I told you that there was a plant-based drug that was technically illegal but was being sold openly anyway in unauthorized storefronts all across Canada? And I told you that enforcement of that had been lax at best and mostly non-existent because of a range of factors from priorities to regulations to jurisdiction. And then I told you that the owners running these stores had basically gambled and decided the risk was worth the potential benefit if the product were soon to become legal. Since then, they'd already be up and running and have a huge leg up on the competition. If I told you all of that, would you think you'd just traveled back in time half a decade? For a third day in a row, this popular city place pot shop, uh, illegal pot shop behind me, uh, has been shut down by police. Uh, cafe has been targeted by raids since Monday, but continued to restock and reopen every day this week. Five years since that clip, guess what? Pot is legal, cafe is still open and still selling. Enforcement is an afterthought now that there's a pot shop on every street. And so even without a license, it appears, Café gambled and eventually won. And now, today, the cycle repeats itself, only with a much different substance. We respect the law, we respect the government, it's just something that we have to do on behalf of ourselves as people. Despite threats from Montreal Mayor Valérie Plante, Fun Guys is opening in Montreal Tuesday. It's a magic mushrooms dispensary and a chain with 11 shops already existing in Ontario. How different are these two scenarios and how different are these two drugs? Why have police largely declined to raid these mushroom stores? What can the prevalence of retail shrooms tell us about the rise of psychedelics in general? And uh, if we are following the same path, does this mean mushrooms are the next drug on the legalization playlist? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Daniel Eisencraft Klein is a PhD candidate at the Dalla School of Public Health and an expert in commercial determinants of health, a term that will become clear through this conversation. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Jordan. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. I think this is uh, a really interesting time because it's mirroring something that happened a few years ago. And also, I bet I'm not the only one who has walked down a street uh, in their city and seen a store apparently just selling magic mushrooms. Isn't psilocybin technically illegal in Canada? What are what are the laws exactly governing uh, its use and and apparently sale? Yeah, well, the short answer is is yes. It is legal possession, trafficking, cultivation of psilocybin is entirely illegal in Canada unless authorized by Health Canada. That's the official line. So it's prohibited under Schedule Three of the CDSA. I'd emphasize, though, there are a lot of qualifiers here. There are still plenty of options to legally access psilocybin in Canada. The first and often the place where people are pointed to would be clinical trials. So Mm. if you were interested, you could look at Health Canada's clinical trials database where sponsors are required to register their trials. and, And you'd find probably 20 studies currently either pending or ongoing. And those are evaluating psilocybin's impact on a wide range of medical conditions, often depression or or post-traumatic stress disorder, but also on cognitive impairment, on alcohol use disorder, 
even end-of-life stress, interestingly, pretty wide range. So if you were to qualify into one of those trials, you would be technically legally accessing psilocybin, of course, through the medical system, but all the same. Then as of 2020, also, uh, there's a small number of individuals that could get legal access for therapeutic use through exemptions under the Drugs and Substances Act. Hmm. Those are case by case, but and they're quite slow moving, but there are quite a few people still waiting from my understanding. It is technically another way that people could legally access through this exemption. And then actually, finally, I th- there's a lot of qualifiers here. Mm-hmm. Uh, as of last year, through what's called the Special Access Program, doctors now can apply for psilocybin for patients with what are deemed serious or life-threatening conditions when other therapies aren't working or certain other conditions aren't met. If you live in BC, that's where Health Canada granted an exemption under, again, the CDSA to decriminalize two and a half grams of certain drugs. Mm -hmm. And that included opioids, crack and cocaine and and methamphetamines. Uh, But it also included MDMA, which does have psychedelic properties. So that is different than psilocybin, but it's technically a hallucinogenic drug that is currently fully decriminalized, at least for possession, probably temporarily within part of Canada. But none of those exemptions are a big storefront that says fun guys on it, where I can just walk in and grab magic mushrooms if I want to pay for them. Um, Do we have any uh, knowledge of the extent of retail psilocybin or mushrooms in Canada right now? Others may have better data on this. I'm not aware of anything definitive, but I could point someone to at least 30 retail stores in Canada and maybe a dozen websites that tomorrow you could access in Canada Hmm. where they're selling psilocybin and often a number of other psychedelics. So I don't think we have a great sense of the market, especially online, it's difficult to track, but, you know, 30 retail stores operating at any, in any given day, uh, it's significant. This might be a very simple question, but how are they operating if what they're doing is illegal? So often what's happening is, I, I know the rules around zoning are the perhaps the most exciting thing I could talk about for your listeners. But uh, oh, we love that on this show, actually. <laughs> well, perfect. Basically, when you're, when you're zoning an area for retail, then it's up to the landlord to put whatever retail store in place that they wish, right? So there's no specific license for, for um, let's say, a clothing store. It's just a retail license. So once that's been granted, it's on the police actually to take this on because the landlord is is technically following the rules with with some constraints. Uh, so we're operating this kind of limbo where where no level of government appears to want to actually take this on. A lot of them have pushed this over to the police, and then the police say that they are overwhelmed with other issues and that they don't want to uh, deal with it themselves right now. But there actually there have been raids. So in Hamilton, in Montreal recently in Toronto, they don't seem to be actually making almost any impact. And most of these stores are reopening, but the raids are happening. So I think the store owners perhaps are playing the long game here. I mean, I've talked to a couple. I think some are profiting enough to make the risk and potential charges worth it hmm. and maybe hoping that in the long run, those charges are dropped. I think there's a viewing this through the cannabis model, to your point earlier, but there doesn't seem to be that same push around legalization that was with cannabis amidst those raids. Perhaps I turn out to be wrong about that. But I I think just to take a step back, there's this overwhelming burden on both law enforcement and governments right now around the opioid crisis. That's the context in which they're operating. And so they've said their focus can't be on psychedelics. Yeah, I, I think as well, there's some common sense happening here where policymakers and police are feeling 
perhaps are calculating that nothing terrible necessarily is happening from the existence of these stores, you know, relatively speaking to the opioid crisis. And so they're taking that blind eye approach for now. I I would guess as well, though, I'm not in the minds of these policymakers, but they realize the problem is way out of hand, especially in places like Vancouver or Toronto, each of which might have 10 or 15 stores operating already. So these would be major operations to bring these down, not to mention that this would do nothing to address the pretty huge online home delivery market. Hmm. Uh, So I think politically, it's quite tricky for, for governments. You risk causing an uproar if you shut them all down which would then bring the issue to the forefront. And I'm not sure they actually want that issue at the forefront right now. Since we've alluded to it a couple of times, how similar is this to what was happening five years ago, a little more than five years ago, on the cusp of legalization with marijuana when dispensaries were prolific across Canada? I mean, there were hundreds of them. What is the same and what is different? Yeah, it's tempting to paint the parallels. I think to start, we don't have that many models of drugs becoming legal historically. So we only have so many colors to paint with here. So yes, I'd agree there are some strong similarities. One is that, you know, civil disobedience in both cases seem to be helping to push the needle. So I'd argue, especially because most of my work is around policy change, so I'm biased, but I I think big Long-term changes are happening perhaps through legislation. But individuals who actively are pushing back against prohibition do seem to often catalyze some of those changes. You know, some of this is done out of principle and seems to come from a real sense of the injustices of the war on drugs. Others just have found a way to make some good money without having to pay any taxes on it. Those two reasons are not mutually exclusive, by the way. Hmm. But the parallel is there. Another is that we have people being told that there's this medical model, as we had with cannabis, that they can access the product through if they qualify, and that's just been insufficient. And so retail stores are filling in that gap. But there are real differences. I think, you know, around 2016, 2017, there was this sense Trudeau's government had been clear about their plans for legalizing cannabis. By 2017, the House had already passed some of the legislation and the Senate had in early 2018. So there's this real sense of progress towards legalization. I'm not sure we're seeing that with psychedelics. There's not that same discussion going on among high-level ministers or among uh, high levels of government. Right. And really the movement I'm seeing is towards a medical model instead. And so we have these retail stores progressing while the medical model is what is getting most of the validation and support at the higher levels. But I'm not sure that's actually where we're going to land into in this legalized recreational market. Uh, this is something uh, I bet you could talk about for a while, and we've talked about uh, previously in some aspects on this show, but it sure seems like right now there's been an explosion in general interest in psychedelics, research into them, applications of them, and I mean, in some cases, including this, maybe uh, availability of them. Do you think that's true? And if so, what's behind it? I think that's a good split because we can conflate what is psychedelics in the zeitgeist and the general, what we're hearing about psychedelics with changes in use and then changes in availability, and they are distinct. In terms of discussion, I think we are seeing an interesting moment where mainstream figures, people like Michael Pollan, uh, are talking openly about using these products. And that has lent it a level of credibility. And I think a lot of people have spoken about this 
in terms of changing their lives. You know, a, a number of people have spoken about using psychedelics in ways that have addressed long-term mental health issues, long-term depression. So I, I actually think that has a, a real impact when, quote-unquote, everyday people are learning a lot about it. In terms of use, I think the latest data was about 2% of adults using psychedelics in Canada in the past year. You know, that data can be tricky because many people are hesitant to tell this is a government-run study about their use of drugs that the government is keeping illegal. Right. So if we were to trust that data, that would be about 800,000 people using this. And it's not clear that that has increased dramatically. I think what we are seeing, though, is this availability, to your point, that that has changed. And you know, the dark web and the online markets is changing the drug markets as a whole. So this is kind of a microcosm of that. But the lack of raids outside of a few recently has surprised, I think, a number of people that, that these stories are able to operate in the open. That has been a shift. And, you know, there were little places that people might have known about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but it was nothing like this. Uh, the last two to three years has been an enormous change. You know, you mentioned there's a wide spectrum, and certainly we've talked on this show about um, some of the new applications in mental health, but there's a whole range from, you know, casual for fun to people who claim that microdosing makes them more energetic or creative to those more serious uses. What does the research tell us about where that line is, if there even is a line between like, okay, these are things that we actually know that they can be used for. We've done studies. They have this application and uh, stuff that is, uh, you know, I hesitate to use the term pseudoscience, but that is what it can feel like. I'd say we have some good evidence. In the U.S., MDMA has made it to stage three trials as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. That's the final stage of clinical trials in the United States. Yeah. There's a range of conditions that psychedelics may help to treat as discussed. I think the evidence is still emerging, but promising. We just need a lot more of it. We need perhaps a lot more funding, more sustainable funding. But you're right. There's a balance between the pseudoscience and the claims that we're hearing and pretty rigorous evidence that we're looking for. A lot of those are going to come from strong funding models that allow these to be evaluated over longer terms. Hmm. So often what we're doing is evaluating the impact on, let's say, depression within two weeks, four weeks, three months. Um, but I, I, I'm especially interested in longitudinal data. I want to know whether these have an impact a year on, two years on. And if not, how often one would have to take these or use these for that. I'd say Canada has been quite slow in funding this, but to the federal government's credit, they actually did provide a small $3 million grant just earlier this year to support three of those trials. In the U.S., where a lot of this data comes from, federal agencies don't support clinical research on Schedule One drugs, Schedule One compounds usually. So that's really complicated it. But I think that we have this interesting model now of, of research funding around psychedelics that's come from philanthropy and even some crowdfunding. It's incredible that crowdfunding could fund research on, on psychedelics. Right. The Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research might be the most promising in terms of this work. They have, uh, I think, about $55 million in funding and seem to be quite committed to doing this research, generally free from commercial interest. And they got the first 
United States federal grant for psychedelic treatment research in half a century, just a couple of years ago. Hmm. And so it does seem like the dial's moving on, on getting better evidence. Uh, and they recently did find some pretty significant impacts of psilocybin on major depressive disorder, even up to a year later. So to my earlier point, they're actually looking at this longer term. I don't get the sense that they're especially biased in terms of finding uh, that it is making an impact. I think they really are interested in figuring this out either way. Let's bring it back to the retail aspect of this. How concerned should we be about people being able to uh, walk in off the street and, and just buy this stuff in whatever amount? I would say that my concerns are more about the lack of re regulation around the stores than the fact that they can access them themselves. Yeah. This is not to say that there aren't significant risks with psychedelics. So, you know, in the case of psilocybin, as far as we know, um, it does not have addictive properties, but there, uh, there are all sorts of risks that are well-documented. To your point, the more concerning issue is the lack of, let's say, a regulated supply. So especially with synthetic drugs like MDMA, let's say, when we have this poison drug supply that we're seeing with opioids um, coming from fentanyl and carfentanil, mm -hmm. et cetera, that is a real risk. So that would be less about the actual properties of the psychedelics and more about a tainted supply. I think also people can come in off the streets, ask for this product and end up with very little actual proper education or information on them. That's kind of what I was getting at is like, you got to know a bit about this stuff before you use it. Yeah. And you know, I, I know... I saw one of the someone from one of the stores commented on one of my articles saying that they they provide this education and provide pamphlets and and I commend the stores that do. I think the issue is we're leaving it as voluntary and as up to each store to do it themselves. So some of them give some good information, some don't give any at all. Some make wild claims about what psychedelics can do for you. It's asking a lot of store owners to take this on. And the evidence seems to indicate that when we make it voluntary, it ends up pretty patchwork in terms of the information that, that people get. And especially in terms of, you know, uh, this intersects with different conditions, with, with schizophrenic conditions, with, with bipolar, and you want people to go in fully informed. You know, if they're adults, if they're going into this, wishing to use it, you want to make sure they have all the information possible. It's not clear to me that that's happening. On top of that, we have the marketing and branding that many of these stories have, which are splashy, which I would argue appeal to kids mm -hmm. with a lot of bright colors and a lot of cartoons. I would push for plain packaging. So you put that all together, you end up with what I would say is a retail experience that's more promotional than educational or informational. And right. I would prefer something like psychedelics be squarely within that information and education uh, sector. What should we do about this if you were a policymaker? And I mean, I guess, specifically right now about the retail stores selling this stuff, but more broadly, what should policymakers do with the fact that Psychedelics are becoming more popular and more retail level and easier to access and more people are curious about them. I think a lot of people said that uh, it took a long time and it was pretty messy with pot. Uh, how can we do better? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Well, I, I think the first question would be for law enforcement or for whomever is leading these raids, asking what effect they're aiming for before even getting into this question of evaluating the effect of those raids. So 
Sometimes it's not quite clear what the objective is of the current strategy. It's framed occasionally as aiming to address organized crime, sometimes to deter use. Um, in terms of deterring use, it's not clear to me at all that these raids do that. I'd call it a, a fart in a hurricane. Mm-hmm. It does not seem to actually make an impact on supply in any way that limits use, if that's indeed your goal. In terms of addressing organized crime, it may make some impact, but I think it, it, it's a piecemeal solution that really does very little compared to truly bringing in a regulated market. You know, we saw this even with Project Claudia, the, that largest raid in Canada ever on marijuana dispensaries. The majority of charges never even went to trial. It's easy to lose sight of this new model of cannabis legalization in Canada, in Canada which we so often take for granted, has been the thing that really made that dent in the impact and influence of organized crime. Mm-hmm. So that's something to think about when we're thinking about psychedelics. In terms of moving forward, I'd make a distinction to begin with about what we believe is good and what is acceptable. What I mean by that is I think it's useful to say at the outset that regulating and legalizing psychedelics is different than encouraging them. In fact, I'd argue if done properly, it could even do the opposite, if, if that is your goal, if you do want to discourage their use, that those two things are distinct. But I can tell you that already those who want to use psychedelics for recreational use are doing so. Right. If you just take a glance at the dark web, if, as you say, you go into one of the psychedelic stores, whether you like it or not, people who want to use them are getting them very easily right now. And it doesn't appear that these recent raids, this raid and repeat strategy is doing anything to change that. So we can bury our heads in the sand, but it's happening either way. So it's more, what are we going to do about it? In terms of the stores themselves, I I don't know if I have a particularly strong stance because I I see them as a consequence of a number of policy failures more than really a long-term solution. I I think I felt this way about the the illegal cannabis stores when they were all opening pre-legalization. I was kind of defensive of their existence in the absence of proper alternatives, but not necessarily thrilled with their approach. I remember one clerk giving me you know, 10 different health conditions that she claimed pot would address for me, Hmm. uh, which isn't necessarily the model of service I'd hope for with legalized substances. I mean, I will say some psychedelic stores I visited are really careful with age checks and providing at least some information on the products, but that's not a guarantee. So in terms of moving forward, there's two directions. I think the medical angle is more persuasive to the public. So people are more sympathetic to the idea of legalizing psychedelics for medical use than for recreational use. And that may be the Trojan horse that full-on legalization allows. I would encourage caution around and considerations of the downsides of that approach. We often create this two-tiered system with drugs where a medical validation opens up this wide range of options and even financial assistance for those options, while those without are pushed further into the underground market. And we end up imbuing the medical arena with this ability to be this gatekeeper. So, you know, we have this idea that it makes sure those who, quote unquote, should have access do so and the rest are kept out. Right. And that model works great for something like blood thinners, let's say, but it just doesn't work for drugs that a significant chunk and from what we know, the majority of those using it actually just want to use recreationally. And I guess that's where I'm getting back to the pragmatism. It is ignoring reality if we just shove this into the medical model. That said, especially as it seems more likely that conservatives will win the next federal election, from what I can see, the only progress I can imagine in the shorter term is around going through the medical system. Mm -hmm. And I think as we do that, the next steps would be looking at the 
burden of these exemptions and how difficult we've made it in terms of those who are trying to get access to psychedelics. I think we need to be realistic that for most people, if they are applying for an exemption and it's taking months for access, and if it's extraordinarily difficult to navigate the whole system, they have 10 storefronts within, you know, an hour's drive. Yeah. Asking of them to go through that instead of just going to the storefront that they can easily access psychedelics on the same day from uh, seems unrealistic. So I think we should always keep in mind how this medical model uh, and the recreational model intertwine. And when it comes to providing exemptions, especially for people with really serious conditions that we want to make sure have access, doing the best with what we have and recognizing how easily diverted this group of people can be to the recreational market if we make it overly difficult for them to access the medical model. Daniel, thank you so much for this. It's a fascinating discussion. Yeah, thank you, Jordan. Thank you so much for having me. Daniel Eisencraft-Klein at the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. That was the big story for more, including stories that we did way back when on those illegal pot shops that eventually became quasi-legal pot shops, but either way, still sell a lot of pot. You can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter, as always, at thebigstoryfpn. Reach out to us there if you've got a story suggestion, an idea, or even a complaint. You can also just email us directly. That address is hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca, and you can phone us up and leave a voicemail. That number is 416-935-5935. The Big Story is available absolutely everywhere you get podcasts. I shouldn't even have to say that at this point, but if you've got a new way to get podcasts and The Big Story isn't there, we always want to know about it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.